This is the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I'm your host, Kat Bean Hansen. Welcome. We're glad you're here. This week's message was originally given on February 20th, 2022. Our guest speaker is Dr. John Burnight, who teaches in the Department of Philosophy and World Religions at the University of Northern Iowa. His message is called the early life of the Buddha. He was born, according to Buddhist tradition, the man who would become the Buddha, was born in 563 BC in a place called Lumbini Grove, which is in what is now Nepal. And unlike a lot of other religious figures who are sort of the product often of, of um, a very harsh early life, so characters like Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, according to tradition, all were had a lot of suffering. The Buddha's early life went very much the other way. So he was born Siddhartha Gautama to, and he was the son of a Hindu king. And he was raised in absolutely extraordinary privilege. And around the time of his birth, according to tradition, uh, Brahmin priests came to his father, the king, and said, your son is destined for greatness in one of two ways. He will either be a great king like you, or he will renounce the kingdom and save the world. And his father said, well, I want him to be a great king like me, kind of like wants to continue his dynasty. That's his emphasis. And so he decided he was going to try to protect his young son from anything that might ever upset him or trouble him. And so his parents wind up wanted being sort of the ultimate helicopter parents, right? never letting him see anything that would upset him. Imagine growing up like that, right? Where you're sheltered from everything. He's not even allowed to leave the palace grounds uh, until until he's in his early 20s, basically. Um, And so he grows up with this extraordinary sense of privilege and indulgence and avoidance of anything that might cause him suffering. So at a certain point, he winds up, um, he gets married and has a child without ever leaving home, right? That was sort of what, what his life trajectory was like. But he knew that someday he was going to have a realm to rule. And so he decided one day that he wanted to go out and see it, see the people who would be his subjects. And so he got in his chariot with a chariot driver and rode for the first time out of the palace grounds. And he saw four sites that would transform world religious history and set him on his path to enlightenment. As he's riding along, the first thing he sees is he sees a man walking with gray hair and stooped over with a cane. And this figure, young Siddhartha says to ask his chariot driver, what's wrong with that guy? And they say, oh, he's just old. What is old? He didn't have any conception of old, of, of, of of the ravages of age. And so the chariot driver explains to him, yeah, this is what happens to people. Just as you've grown up, you will also grow old. And Siddhartha says, this will happen to me as well. Yes. And can you imagine learning about age and aging and the, the, the ravages of time for the first time when you are in your early 20s. So then they continue a little further. They see a man who's not old, but is clearly in pain, in distress. Well, what's wrong with that guy? Well, he's sick. What is sickness? He'd never been exposed to sickness. 
So at this point, his world is sort of really kind of crumbling around him, right? If you're ever finding these, these experiences at this, at this late date that many of us learn when we're little kids. Then there's the big one. Number three, the third site, he sees a dead man. He sees a corpse on the side of the road. He says, well, that guy's not moving at all. What's wrong with him, right? Well, he's dead. What is death? He'd never heard of the concept of death. Again, according to Buddhist tradition, he never heard of this. So imagine learning about death for the first time when you're in your 20s. So many of us, my personal experience was learning about death through, usually a lot of parents do it like with goldfish or something, you know, with, with, with animals like that. And that's traumatic enough for a kid. But imagine learning about, about death at that point in your life and having no exposure to the concept and realizing that this is what awaits us all. So basically he says to his chariot driver, so you're telling me I will, if I'm lucky, I'm going to grow old and die. And if I'm unlucky, I'm going to get sick and die. That's what's going to happen. And everybody that I've loved, my parents, this is, this is the, the fate of all of us. And the chariot driver says, yes. So he's reeling at this point, right? He's in the chariot. His world has just exploded. And then he sees the fourth sight. He sees a wandering monk. And this monk is out here living in this world of misery and suffering and knows all of these things that Siddhartha has just learned but he has a look of serenity on his face. And so Siddhartha says, what does that guy know that I don't know? That he's able to function like this and be serene. So goes back to the palace and becomes preoccupied with the idea of how to end human suffering. How can people live in this world and, and, and make sense of it? So he eventually does what his father feared he would do and renounce the throne and goes off, he abandons worldly possessions and goes off and lives the life of a mendicant, uh, of a beggar, and decides he's going to try to figure out, okay, how do we make sense of human suffering? How can we eliminate human suffering or at least minimize it? And so if you're in ancient Hindu society and you're looking for spiritual guidance, stop number one is the Brahmins, right? They're the priestly authorities, the highest authorities. So he says, I'm going to go find a Brahmin and learn the teachings of a Brahmin. So he goes and lives in a cave with a Brahma Brahmin for a while, um, named Alara Kalama. And after studying with him and mastering the Brahmin's teachings, he realizes there's no, this is not, this is not helping, right? All the Brahmin can teach me is how to maybe come back in a better life next time. But the process is going to repeat over and over and over again. And so there's still going to be suffering. But he says, well, maybe I just got a bad Brahmin. I'm going to go find another Brahmin. So he goes and finds a Brahmin named Udaka Ramaputta. And in that moment when he's talking to the second Brahmin, he realizes it's the same problem, right? They can help in a way, but they can't end or minimize human suffering. They don't have an answer for that. And then he remembers that fourth sight that he'd seen on that journey, the monk who had had this look of serenity on his face. So he decides he's going to go study with some monks. And so he does so. He goes and studies with five monks in a place called Benares in a park, which is near Hinduism's holiest city uh, to this day. It's called Varanasi in Northern India. And he basically outmonks the monks, right? It's like, like super self-denial, austere lifestyle, extreme, um, extreme austerity in the sense that he, well, according to tradition, he was living for a time on six grains of rice per day. That was his diet. Okay. This didn't work. He almost died. He falls into unconsciousness and in fact would have died if not for the ministrations of a young village girl named Sujata, who actually nurses him back to health. And so she becomes hugely important in Buddhist tradition because 
he wouldn't have had this made the steps that he made towards enlightenment without her intervening and keeping him alive. So he's seen now. He's tried, he's had three different life experiences, right? Extreme self-indulgence, which is how he was raised, the messages of the Brahmin teachers, and extreme self-denial with the monks, and none of them have worked. So this is phase three. And this is all called, by the way, the, he referred to as the noble search, right? He's gone on this journey looking for enlightenment. And it takes him six years to get there with these three phases, the Brahmin phase, the monk phase, and then the pure concentration phase. So he goes and he sits under a tree, which comes to be known as the Bodhi tree. And he sits there for 49 days in intense mental concentration, just pure mental effort. And he attains at the end of that time, enlightenment, and becomes the Buddha at that point, right? And that's what the word Buddha means, is awakened one or enlightened one. And so the form this enlightenment takes is he says he's, he's able to see all of his past lives, the entire history of samsara, centuries of life after life after life. And it gives him a perspective on what they all have in common, what all these lives have in common. And that is the fundamental observation. There are several, but the most important one for our purposes is impermanence. It's called anika is the word in Sanskrit. And it's nothing lasts. And so he says, this fundamental characteristic of because there's nothing permanent, but we act as if things can be permanent, as if we can gain what we want and then hang on to it. And he says that never happens. He looks at the big picture and what we see, is, he sees is life, death, rebirth, life, death, rebirth. And so recognizing this, what he says, he says the Buddha views suffering as a result of delusion. Okay, we cannot internalize this fact that everything is fundamentally impermanent. And so when he sees this, this leads him to proclaim the core doctrines of Buddhism, which are the four noble truths. The first of these noble truths is life is, the word is dukkha. And dukkha is often translated as suffering. Life is suffering. Um, some Sanskrit scholars have basically have said that it's probably more like out of joint or unsatisfying. There's just something off about it. It literally means it's like an axle where a wheel is not in proper alignment. And so it just, it's kind of frustrating and the, frustrating, the frustration accumulates over time. The comparison I like to use is it's like, if you ever go to like Hy-Vee or Fairway and you get the bad grocery cart, you know, and you're like halfway down that first aisle, like, is it worth going back and getting a different cart or am I just going to bear with By the end of it, I wish I'd gone back and got a different cart because it's driving me crazy because it's like that all the time. And so, this, but that's what, that's what it is. It's like out of joint. That's what life is fundamentally. It just, there's no way to hold on to sort of lasting satisfaction. There's constant frustrations. And so then he goes to the second noble truth. He says, well, if this is the way that the world is, what causes that? What causes us to experience this? And he says, tanha causes dukkha. So that's another Sanskrit word. Tanha is sometimes translated as craving or desire or attachment. And so basically he, he has this insight, which he's seen over the course of all these past lives, that we imagine that we will be happy if X, right? If we get this job, if we find the love of our life, if we have success or status or any of these things. But as he points out, because he's seen this in the big picture, even if we get it, what's the problem? Even if we get all our dreams come true, we can't hang on to it. It's going to be lost, right? Because of this inevitability of human condition of death, right? So he says, well, we can't change that, these features of the world, impermanence and dukkha. So he says, the only way thing we can change is our response to it. So he says, if you eliminate tanha, craving or attachment or desire, then you eliminate your experience of dukkha or at least minimize it. 
And so he loved the metaphor of a physician. He said his basically, here's the diagnosis of what causes the problem, and here's the prescription. You end your experience of tanha, of craving, attachment, or desire, and you can end the suffering. Okay. So he saw our own minds as the primary source of our unhappiness. We're trapped in mental prisons. As he says, liberation waits for those who can change the way they look at the world and work towards freedom from attachment. But how do we do that? How can we step out of, outside of our, multi, our mental pr prisons and eliminate Tana if it's all we've ever known? And so he gives us then the prescription, right? Which is the eightfold path, the famous eightfold path of Buddhism, a way to live that brings one into um, sort of awareness of the truth, awareness of the fact of, of the fundamental characters of human existence, and it allows us to be able to deal with them. And so um, it's also known as the middle path, right? Between self-indulgence and extreme self-denial. It teaches a Buddhist how to live, and it includes both um, ethical and mental components. So some of you are probably familiar with them, but right view, right? Which is you have to know and kind of understand the Four Noble Truths, right? Resolve, knowing that you also have to decide to do something about it, right? rather than just go back into this world of chasing pleasure and status and things like that. Right speech, you're not supposed to lie, slander, or use idle talk. Uh, right action, you must abstain from taking life, from taking what is not given, and from carnal indulgence, right? So these are all great ethical maxims. Right livelihood, there are certain careers that are just fundamentally incompatible with being a Buddhist. He talks about being, you can't be a Buddhist arms maker, right? You can't be a Buddhist um, a slave trader or my favorite poison peddler, right? <laughs> Doesn't work. So the last three elements of the Eightfold Path involve meditative practice, including really importantly, mindfulness and living in the moment. And when, you, when you're doing that successfully, you can attain the eighth step is pure concentration, true awareness of the human condition. What he, what he says, he says, all we are is the result of what we have thought of what our minds are doing with us, doing to us. So he says, the Eightfold Path, this emphasis on mindfulness and meditation can help you overcome delusion and end our experience of dukkha. Now, Buddhist tradition teaches that those who have mastered this, that the, the hold of samsara cycle, the cycle of death, life, death, rebirth, has no hold on them anymore. When they die, they, essentially, they go to nirvana, which literally means extinguishing, like extinguishing the flame or extinction. And so this tanha, this craving, attachment, or desire is conceptualized as a fire that burns within you, and you want to try to find a way to minimize it and then put it out, and then you can end suffering. And so his disciples famously ask him, well, what's nirvana like? And he says, it can't be explained to anybody. You have to experience it. If I told you it was annihilation, that would be wrong. If I told you that it was paradise, that would be wrong. That would be misleading. Just know that it's better than this life of continuing suffering, right? Coming back life after life. So according to tradition, he then spends the next 45 years of his life from 35 to 80 as a wandering beggar spreading his teachings, um, winning many followers. And like Jesus, as was the case with Jesus, over time, his followers started, came to have many different views of him. Some viewed him as merely a guy who figured it out. Some start viewing him as something like a god, right? As his fame began to spread, he was asked not who he was, but what he was. They asked him, are you a god? He said, no. An angel? No. A saint? No. Well, then what are you? He said, I am awake. The Buddha taught that we must learn to be present in each moment and to live a life of gratitude. 
rather than striving to obtain possessions, power, or status in a futile attempt to fill the discontent inside of us. He believed all that is necessary to end suffering and to attain peace and contentment is in our own minds that we should, as the title of our closing hymn states today, be lamps unto ourselves. This has been the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists. The music is by Nathan Moore. If you want to learn more about the CVUU, visit our website at www.cedarvalleyuu.org. And you can also find us on Facebook or Instagram at Cedar Valley UU. We welcome visitors to attend our online services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you'd like to learn more about joining us for a service, send us an email at cvuupodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.